a listener production. This is From Zero, conversations with business founders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author, and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost a billion dollars annually. In this episode, you ask me the questions in what we call Ask Adam Anything. If you're a budding entrepreneur, established founder, or business professional, and want to ask us a question, please send a voice recording to info at fromzeropodcast.com, and we'd love to get you on the show. Now, on to our first question. I have two questions. The first would be, what do you think is the most overrated trait that is valued by investors? And the second would be, what's your advice to a young Aussie startup that's just done a seed round and then they see a direct competitor in the States raise a monster round? What, what piece of wisdom do you have? Thank you for that great question. Uh, a great two-part question, I should say. So I'll answer your first question first. What is the most overrated trait uh, that is valued by investors? Um, well, I think probably the most undervalued or the most important trait, and I've spoken about it on, on the pod before, is, is without doubt grit. Uh, and that's what it's what most investors, the most smart uh, early stage investors are looking for. And, and the reason is pretty simple and that ideas are pretty cheap. Uh, and what counts is execution and the ability to pivot on the idea when things get tough and, and the ideas, and if you just don't get product market fit, most great businesses have pivoted multiple times. If you look at the world's most valuable business, Apple, that that's done a number of pivots from personal computers to, of course, when Steve Jobs came back, got rid of most products, and of course, famously uh, founded the created the iPod and then the iPhone, and of course, uh, Tim Cook has that legacy. So, the ability to pivot and be gritty is a super important trait. A trait that's overrated is, is probably storytelling or the ability to create a narrative, and we've seen that over the past. We've seen an incredible bubble in in anywhere from startup to even listed high growth companies. And you see it in, in everything. And there's been a great adjust, probably an 80% adjustment for most publicly listed high growth businesses in both the US and Australia. And what we've what we haven't seen though is an adjustment in private va- private uh, company valuations. You see a lot of businesses getting incredible valuations on sort of 100, 200, 500 times revenue on the basis of, of the CEO founder being a great storyteller. And and Scott Galloway talks about this and 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 it's the market in a bubble period changes from being uh, from looking at fundamentals, so looking at things like EBITDA and cash flow, and ultimately the value of a business eventually becomes the present value of its cash flows. So ultimately, all business businesses have to spin off cash and make money. But in a bubble, investors stop looking at that and stop looking at a business's ability to make money and start focusing on the narrative. And Travis Kalanick was a classic one. He was the just an incredible storyteller at Uber and was able to raise billions of dollars. Actually, an even better example is, is Adam Newman from WeWork. And I think if you look at, at peak startup, that was probably three years ago when WeWork was valued at $47 billion by SoftBank. And it was never a real valuation because SoftBank was the only investor in the last three rounds. So it kept bidding itself up in the, in the vain hope it would be able to goose investors in a, in a public listing. Sadly, investors were too smart for Adam Newman and SoftBank and, and it ended up listing for $8.5 billion US this year, which was a much more reasonable valuation. But what Adam Newman was able to do was create this incredible story around WeWork being a tech business. I think he called himself real estate as a service uh, or, or property as a service. And clearly what, what WeWork was, was a business that uh, rented long 
and then sold short. So it, it would enter into these long-term leases and they would enter into short-term kind of call it licenses with, with uh, people who wanted to rent space. And that's to say, there's, it's actually a, a become a, a pretty solid business. There's some really well-run businesses, not only in Australia, but around the world that, that follow that model. But, but Adam Newman took it to the nth degree in that he tried to claim what was essentially a property business was a tech business and it wasn't, but he was amazing at telling a story. So the overrated trait is, is how good is a, is an executive at telling a story? And I see some, some competitors of ours, uh, who are great at telling stories. And, and I've, I've been helping out a, I'm an investor in a business in the, uh, alternative food space that creates vegan, vegan foods. And I would regularly speak, and this is a, a very talented founder who, who I really liked. And he ended up getting a, a really good valuation on, on the business, but he wanted an even higher valuation. And I, I'd spend many conversations telling him, don't worry what other people are raising at. The fact that a worse business is raising at a valuation of $100 million doesn't mean you need to be raising, a business, raising at $150 million. Raise at the valuation that's right for, for you and for your business and get a valuation that rewards investors for the risk they're taking. And he probably raised at a slightly higher valuation, but he was much more tempered in what, what they were looking at originally. And that allowed him to get money in the business and, and survive and keep, keep, keep growing. So clearly there, there has been a problem that is starting to get unwound, but we still see many early stage investors, and this really harks back to, to how VCs work. And VCs are more interested in getting that hundred bagger that makes the fun. VCs want a Canberra or VCs want a, uh, an Uber or, or they want a, an Apple. Uh, they don't necessarily want, it's very different to angel investing. As an angel, what you're essentially trying to do is get a get 100% return. But a VC often wants a 10,000% return to return the fund. So, so VCs are often very inclined to believe the storyteller over the fundamentals. And that's why a lot of VCs who simply just do basic pattern recognition on industry and then back the person who tells the best story. I think we saw with SoftBank who simply tried to throw capital at businesses and, and essentially failed uh, that, that simply backing stories over backing real businesses is where so many investors go wrong. So I guess as a, as a founder, uh, look for that. So you want to try and show that you can make money as a business, maybe not this year or next year, but the business has product market fit and is capable of making money. Second part of the question, uh, what's my advice to a, to a startup who, who's, who sees a competitor raise a bunch of money in the States? And it's kind of linked to your first. Uh, what we, and we, we've had competitors over the years, both locally and, and uh, globally. And what we've always tried to do is just focus on ourselves. It's really easy to be distracted by companies that are raising 100 on 100 200 500 billion dollar valuations and you're when you're uh hacking away with with bootstrap <laughs> bootstrap money and and ultimately you can't control what competitors are doing and and often being bootstrap can be an advantage if you raise a bunch of money a business who raises a bunch of money tends to waste that money not always but often they'll they'll spend too much on on people they'll hire too many people they'll overbid for keywords, they'll do stupid things and create lots of really bad habits. And we were bootstrapped till very recently, till a few months ago, uh, and we bootstrapped our way to more than $500 million in sales. And we were always really disciplined. The, the, the disadvantage of that is you grow a bit slower. You're not going to grow 20X a year or very hard to grow 20X a year unless you either capture this incredible flywheel of network effects, but that's unusual, not many Instagrams. But most bootstrap companies have to grow a bit more conservatively because you're only investing in marketing money you have. So the fact that you're bootstrapped, you obviously sound like a really sensible founder. You're, you're doing the right things. If a business overseas uh, raise a bunch of money, don't try and 
copy what they do when you bootstrap because you'll end up just going bust. So be responsible, focus on cash flows, focus on, on raising that next round, but don't be too distracted by the shiny competitor because chances are they'll flame out. Many do, most do. Uh, and you just stick to, stick to your own race and, and be disciplined and, and find that product market fit and you'll have a great business. Hey, Adam. Loving the show. Uh, Ryan here from London in the UK. Uh, we've got a business that's expanding really well, uh, really nicely. We've bootstrapped it um, and are getting to kind of that next level of growth where we could hit accelerate, but not sure whether we're going to uh, raise some capital, whether we whether we go to the bank, ask them for a few dollars, or we just kind of keep bootstrapping reinvesting the cash, um, but we're sort of growing a bit quicker than that. We're also looking at an acquisition and kind of pondering the, the same questions, whether we debt finance it, go and, go and raise some, some equity finance, or we could pay for it just straight out of cash reserves, but not really sure what direction to take to kind of keep facilitating the growth. And it'd be great to hear your thoughts, mate. Um, look, forward to, look forward to hearing them. Cheers. Thank you, Ryan from London. You don't, actually don't sound very English, but you sound like you're a, an outstanding young entrepreneur. Some really great questions. And I love the fact that you've bootstrapped a, a business that to sounds like what is a, a really good scale. So congratulations for that and, and well done on your, your journey so far. And the, and the question you ask is, is so relevant for so many people. The fact that you have the option to keep bootstrapping shows that you're actually in a really good place. And what you want, you always want to be raising capital when you don't need it. And it sounds like you're in that position now. So it probably is a, a good time to raise capital. But the real question is, if you're going to raise capital and don't need it, is should you? And so the obviously the upside of raising capital is you, you can get cash in the business. And this is capital or debt, I should say. And we'll talk about the, the split in a second. But the clear upside of raising capital is you can grow faster. So let's say you've got a business that's it's worth a million dollars for argument's sake. And if you can get another $500,000 in, if that business can be worth $10 million in two years rather than $3 million, then it's almost certainly worth getting that capital in. It's worth copying what we call the dilution because you're going to grow the business tenfold. So it's worth copying a 50% dilution. So the real question is, is, is can you reinvest that money very profitably at a, what we call a really high return on equity? If you can, then it's absolutely worth looking at getting capital in. We can talk about how in a second. If you can't, so if you're getting $500,000 in and simply going to grow at the same rate, then it's pointless. Don't dilute yourself for no reason. And, and the other thing to remember is when you're getting sort of capital or, or certainly debt as well, is there comes, comes responsibilities with that. If you've been bootstrapped since, as you have been since the beginning, you're not beholden to outside investors. You're not beholden to people telling you what to do, to being uh, liable to a board, uh, to, to having to, to account to directors through a reporting every, every three months or six months. So there's, there is a lot, and, and with debt, it's even worse. Debt, you can have covenants. So if, for example, uh, you borrow money, they may require a certain level of EBITDA or revenue. If you don't hit that, the bank can make you repay the money or, or have other, other onerous terms. So you're certainly, you're not giving up the, the farm to do it, but there are absolutely negatives to, to allowing debt and, and equity. Uh, but obviously the positive is you do get cash and also give you a chance to potentially take money out of the business, what we call secondary. So primary is money coming in and secondary is money coming out. So secondary is a great way to... To, because often people like yourself aren't paying yourself much, especially if you're bootstrapped. So getting secondary money out, A, it's great from a tax perspective. You pay less tax on capital gains than you do income. But it's also good to be able to, to buy a house or diversify your risk a bit. But I'm, I'm digressing a little bit. So the real question there is, 
should you take the money, then how do you take it? And that really is, is how fast can you grow? Uh, in terms of the second question, it's, it's a really good, again, it's really a two-part question. Talking about A, should you do an acquisition? And B, how should you finance acquisition? So really two, two questions in one. Should you do it? It's, uh, the fact that you're in a position to be able to do an acquisition is a really good thing. Most businesses don't get that ability till, till later in life. Data shows that about 90% of acquisitions fail. When I say fails, they, they don't cover the cost. So prima facie, most acquisitions are bad. Does that mean you shouldn't do it? No. But it means you've got to think really carefully. And us as a business, so we, one of our early businesses called deals.com was in a sector that was naturally declining. So we tried to get over that natural declination through constant acquisitions. We had a really smart guy called Josh who, who was our COO, who had worked at Insight Venture Capital. He was a really good M&A guy. So he'd go out and find lots of really great targets. And he's really great at identifying businesses and negotiating the deals and then at integrating them. The problem that we had, and this was no fault of Josh's or, or anyone, or it was a fault of all of ours collectively, was you tend to overstate the benefit acquisitions. That's why 90% fail, is people A, pay too much, or B, if you don't pay too much, you understate the amount of work needed to be done. So of the 15 or 16 acquisitions we did, probably one or two worked really well, three or four were probably neutral, and the rest were, were either really bad or completely terrible. And we bought a business at one point, an e-commerce business. So we were a, a business, we had a, multiple businesses in our business. We had a travel business, of course, which is now Luxury Escapes. We had a, a product business, which we sold, and a local business. And both the local and product businesses weren't at scale. So we bought a bigger product business in the hope that we'd be able to uh, rescue our business through more scale. The problem is when you buy a business, as Warren Buffett says, you're much better off buying a good business for a fair price than a shit business for a cheap price. And there's a good reason for that is because good businesses continue to perform well and bad businesses get worse. And we saw that in a number of ways. A, the, the business you buy, if it's a poorly performing business, tends to, to worsen. And, and the second point is you've got to just, you have a massive distraction in getting that business right. So instead of focusing on our great business, our travel business, we'll focus on this terrible product business. So, to, so we had to spend 10, 20, 30% of our development resource trying to fix and integrate this, this e-commerce business. Had we been building new features for our travel business, we would have been far, far better off. So a business that cost us, we gave 8% equity away to buy this business. That equity is probably worth four, four five times, six times now. Plus we had a huge opportunity cost in dev resources that could have been uh, used for our travel business in this other business. So we estimate that acquisition that we thought would cost us about $10 million has probably cost us $100 million. So the cost of that was really significant. And then we had other businesses we bought that were just terrible little businesses. We, we took a bit of time, we wasted a bit of money, or maybe it cost us a couple of million bucks and we then realized our mistake pretty quickly and killed it. So uh, in general, most businesses, most acquisitions fail. The exception to that really is bolt-ons. So if you've got an existing business, let's say you're a business in the in the ride sharing sector and you've got already existing business and you buy a piece of technology or you acquire a really good young founder to get their technology, get the founder in your business, maybe get a few customers along the way and give that founder a bit of equity, that can be a really good way to do it or a customer acquisition uh, add-on or what we call bolt-on. So if you've got a million customers and a great platform and you see a little platform that's got 100,000 customers with a terrible platform putting those customers on your platform for a really cheap price is another really good acquisition. So you're getting, it's effectively not a company buyer, it's buying customers. They're the two really limited sort of forms of acquisitions that tend to work pretty well. Outside that, I've really seen an acquisition work well 
the main reasons that the company, especially public companies do acquisitions is because it gives the CEO a bigger empire and they can pay themselves more. They generally don't think about shareholders. They think about themselves. So in most cases, and that's the reason, and on the public markets, when a, when a company buys another company, usually the acquirer share drops and the target share increases because it's simply it's a value shift from purchaser to seller. Same applies in the, in the private space as well. The public private space is just a smaller, earlier version of, of the public space. So I'm always very careful of acquisitions in general. In terms of how you fund it, that's kind of neutral. Whether you fund it from debt, equity, or cash flows, the cost is really the same. Uh, that's sort of a fundamental tenet of, of business finance. The bigger question is, should you do the acquisition or not? Once you decide to do it, uh, obviously, as we talked about before, raising debt or issuing equity has a significant cost. With, obviously, it's much easier to use your existing cash flows if you can. If you can't and you really want to do the acquisition, I think for startups, getting, getting equity is generally safer than debt because the covenants attaching to debt are usually really serious. So first question is, should you do the acquisition? Be really careful on that. If you really want to do it, if it's a great acquisition, I'd use cash flows first, effectively bootstrap the acquisition. If you can't, then equity is probably your next best bet. And if you can't do that, then look at debt, but it's raising the risk each time. So be, be super careful, but thanks for your question and good luck with your journey. Hi, Adam. It's Andrew here from London. I work in private equity finance. I am currently doing an executive MBA at Cambridge, and I spend a lot of my time researching NFTs or non-fungible tokens to invest in. So the reason I'm mentioning all of this is because I don't have a lot of time spare and I require quite a lot of energy and focus throughout the day. Now, I know you've actually built a pretty impressive business. So could you provide us with some tips that are unconventional, maybe, on how to increase our overall energy levels? So I think everyone knows that good sleep provides that. But, you know, is there anything out of the ordinary that really moved the needle for you? That would be great to hear your advice on that. Andrew from London, we've got a cadre of, of London listeners, which is, which is fantastic. Uh, doing an MBA and working in private equity. So you've done obviously a super smart guy who's done incredibly well. And I think the fact that you're asking these kind of questions is just an indicator of, of, of how good a, a business person you'll be when you, when you obviously you, you do eventually start your own business or, or work in the private equity space. Uh, and I love the question. Uh, not much time, needs energy and focus. What are some tips that, that I do? And I, I guess um, the thing about me, so I, I I tend to, to get up pretty early, uh, partly because I've got youngish kids. So I tend to get up about 5, 5 a.m. I tend to go to bed at about 10. So try, as you said, ma try and maintain that seven, six and a half, seven hours. Uh, it's, it's super macho to be that sort of three, four hours sleep. The investment banker, go to bed at two, wake up at six. I'm not sure that's healthy. Uh, certainly the experts seem to agree that sort of seven hours is really the minimum to get. Eight hours, to me, eight hours is starting to get toppy. I think at eight hours, I actually start feeling tired again. So I think sort of seven, seven to quarter hours is really a sweet spot. And ensuring you have really, if you can, really good sleep. Uh, I'm lucky enough, I don't, I don't take sort of those sleeping tablets or anything like that, but I've heard melatonin is, is a good option as a natural, a natural remedy. But, but yeah, getting that right amount of sleep is, is really critical. But I, I tend to have a pretty good plan of what I'm going to do during the day. So I'll get up at five. I'll try and exercise uh, from 5.30 sort of 5.30 to, to 6.30, be it, be it a run, uh, be it jumping on the Peloton or how do you know someone's got a Peloton? Well, don't worry, they'll tell you. Uh, so I'll jump on the Peloton, 
case in point. Uh, and then I'll, or I'll, I'll have a hit of golf and I'll try and be done exercise wise by seven, uh, try and help with the kids or my wife usually does most of that stuff, but I'm at least around, which, which can be helpful. And I'll try and be done exercise wise by seven. And I actually do, uh, an 18, six fast, which has become intermittent fasting, which has become super popular now. Uh, I actually find it's, it's really good. I, I get less hungry fasting than not fasting as long as I've exercised. So I'll generally eat lunch at about one o'clock. Uh, and have dinner at about seven o'clock. So get that 18 hours, 18 hours in. I find that's really energizing. Uh, good for weight, good for digestion, uh, good for just feeling lively. Uh, I'm also, I also, I'm a, I'm a bit boring. I don't, I don't drink alcohol. When I used to drink alcohol, I'd try not to drink much at night because A, it's not great for sleep and B, it's terrible to exercise. Your, your performance is, is shocking. So I just cut alcohol out completely. If I want to get calories, I want to get it done through something unhealthy food-wise, not not a beer, which is the same amount of calories as a piece of cake. So I don't drink. I've never been a big fan of alcohol. I just cut that out completely. I don't drink coffee. I don't have to artificially stimulate myself or simulate myself, I should say. Uh, so I'm sort of the ultimate in terms of boredom. Uh, don't drink, don't take drugs, don't smoke, don't drink coffee. Uh, probably to one extreme, if I'm going to drink a hot drink, it's generally it's the green tea. So I find that allows me to be be super active. I never have an issue getting up. Really great for sleeping because of the no caffeine thing. Uh, I'm not saying this is this is for everyone, but I think a really easy one is dropping the alcohol. Uh, I think there's, and this is more and more common from certainly from called the, the younger Instagram generation who are now. When I'm now 42, and in, when I was young, uh, to be cool, you needed to, to drink 15 beers at a at a footy function and and then go to a nightclub and sink another few more, and that's what made you cool. These days. Uh, Thankfully, uh, I think people under the age of 25 are smart enough to realize that doesn't make you cool. It makes you unhealthy uh, and it, it makes your life harder, not easier. So seeing sort of younger, and I say work with a lot of young founders, many of, many of whom don't drink. So I think if you can reduce or, or drop the alcohol, uh, you'd be much better off for it, uh, both weight-wise, health-wise, sleep-wise. And it's a, it's a really easy shortcut. And I think getting up early is, is a good one. Don't have to get up at five, get up at six, but just get your exercise done early. And certainly try fasting. Uh, I don't eat meat either. My wife uh, became a vegan a couple of years ago, about three years ago. I, I, despite loving meat myself, there's now so many great alternatives. So we, I stopped eating meat. Watch Game Changers if you haven't done it. One of the greatest docos you'll ever watch. Uh, the upside performance-wise of eating meat is significant. Many of the world's best athletes, especially best endurance runners, none of whom eat meat. I ran, start running my best half marathon times and marathon times. I got sort of four and a half minute marathon Ks. Since I stopped eating meat, I used to be sort of around five minutes. I took about 10% off. So it was really helpful there. So it was a great benefit to performance. Uh, so whether you do one, none, or all those things, I think the, the top one would be no drinking. Second one, if you can reduce or completely remove meat from diet, you'll see a great benefit in performance, digestion, just feeling lighter. Uh, all, all little things, little body hacks that, that certainly helped me, uh, not great, not, not perfect for everyone, but it certainly has worked for me and it's allowed me to be super active, uh, sort of for 18 hours a day, 365 days a year, but good luck on your journey and congratulations and thanks for your question. And that's it for this edition of Ask Adam Anything. Thanks so much for your questions. If you'd like to submit a question, please send a voice recording to info at fromzeropodcast.com. If you're a founder, young professional, or just someone interested in the world of business, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Our producers are Lindsay Green and Ed Gooden. 
And this has been From Zero Podcast with me, Adam Schwab. Listener.